This is our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We now come to the end of 1st Thessalonians. This is the first letter that Paul wrote somewhere in the 50s in the first century. So um, just think about how long ago that was. This is the first century. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 32 or 33. This was written in 51 to 54, somewhere around there. So just a couple of decades afterwards, uh, Paul, the author, was an antagonist towards the gospel. He got saved. He was transformed. God called him as an apostle. And he began to go and plant churches. And he had been for three weeks at the church in Thessalonica. And um, a church sprung up. And he moved on and later on would write back that he wants to come and visit them and set their hearts at ease with something they were worried about. Somehow they were worried that those that had died would miss heaven, would miss being with Jesus, would miss the calling together of the church, as as Paul puts it in chapter 4. And so he wants to set them at ease that those who have died, those who have died in Christ are going to come back with Christ. And then we who are alive will be caught up together to meet him in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. That's the, I said last week, the quintessential rapture passage. And the Bible also says in the last days, mockers are going to arise. And I realize how silly it sounds. I, I had someone leave a message not that long ago where they said something like, Um, the Mormons have this doctrine and the Jehovah Witness has this doctrine and they talked about a couple silly doctrines and they said the church has the rapture doctrine. I understand. I understand why you would think it would be silly. But remember, as we get near the end of the world, everything's coming unglued. There's nothing that's not strange once the rapture of the church happens. We enter into the tribulation period. We enter into a one world government. And I believe we are heading down that road right now. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about it today. But I believe that the the nations that are independent of the rest of the world, nations that are powerful on their own, are numbered. We are heading towards the day when there will be a revival of the Roman Empire, as the Bible says will happen. And remember, Jesus said in the beginning of the book of Revelation, Behold, I come quickly. That doesn't just mean quickly in time, but it means speedily. When it starts to happen, it's going to happen fast. And I think that we're starting to see these things happen and unfold even today. And so Paul leaves us off by saying, comfort one another with these words. Those who are alive and remain are going to come back with the Lord and they're going to be resurrected first. And then we're going to have a resurrection where we're going to meet him in the air. And 1 Corinthians 13 says we're going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. But now he goes on with the same thought. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, But concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need that I should write to you. We're told to watch. We're told to wait for the Lord. We're told to watch for Him. I think of Revelation 3.3. Let me just get there really quick, and I want to read this to you. It's kind of an afterthought for me, but... um, I just, I, I believe that this is the dead church that he's writing to in Revelation 3, 3. And he says, um, let me just start in verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who with, who was, nope, I'm in Hebrews. Hold on. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. 
I know I just did this, you know, just decided to do this. All right, here we go. You ready? Revelation 3, verse 1. All right. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, this is the dead church. This is those that have a name that they're alive. People look at them and go, boy, you guys are really on fire. You guys are really alive. But in reality, they don't have what it really takes. There's no oil in the lamp. They don't really have a relationship with him. And he says, repent and remember the things you've heard, which makes us think that they heard what was right. So he says, watch, because if you don't, I'm going to come upon you like a thief. Later on in the book of Revelation, the same thing is said in chapter 16, verse 15. But here in the context of those that are in the tribulation period, and he tells them that he's going to come upon them as a thief. They need to watch because he's going to come upon them as a thief and he's going to reveal their shame if they don't repent. So the Lord would speak to us that we are to watch and wait and of the times and seasons. Are we indeed living in the last days? Paul tells them, I have no need that I should write to you. The early church believed that Jesus could come back at any moment, that he was going to return to them. I think about when this is written. We talked about it the, the, sometime in the early 50s, first century, and then thinking it's been 20 years since Jesus was taken up into heaven. He's going to come back at any moment, having no idea how long it was going to be. And I think that the picture for his return is coming back together again now. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is going to come back within the next year or five years or 10 years or 20 years. I think he's going to. Does that mean he's going to? No. It may be another hundred years. God may give the world a reprieve and things may change radically. But I think that we are living in an accelerated time. It's like an accelerant has been put into this world and we are just flying forward. When Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, he was told in the last chapter to seal the things of this book up until the time of the end. So the things of Daniel were not going to be really understood until the time of the end. And then he says this, when men will go to and fro upon the earth and knowledge will increase. If that is the signs of the times, is he just saying that during history, men are going to go back and forth on the earth and during history, uh, knowledge is going to increase? Or is he saying in the last days, men are going to go back and forth on the earth and knowledge is going to increase? Because we live in a generation where that is literally true. Knowledge is increasing at an incredible rate and men are going back and forth on the earth. And it seems to me like those things should be unsealed. So I would like us just to take a look at a few things that the Bible has to say about the times and the seasons just so that we're on the same page that they were. They're considering Jesus coming back at any moment. And I think that that's the way God wants us all to live. And it's the way they lived in church history, by the way. They expected Jesus to return. 
And so when the first thing the Bible says about Jesus coming back is that the last days are going to be like birth pains. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. His disciples have said, When are these things going to happen? And what is going to be the sign of your return? So Jesus said, Take heed, no one deceives you. We're going to learn why that's so important. He talks about deception in the last days. We are living in a time where there is great deception and we have to take heed that people don't deceive us. Even the church is deceived and and openly receives it. Things that tickle their ears. He then goes on to say, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all of these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows there is birth pains, quite literally. So what Jesus is saying is not that every time, every time a pestilence happens, we think it's the end. Jesus is coming back. There's all kinds of YouTube videos that you can watch on whether or not COVID-19 is the pestilence that is the sign of the Christ of Jesus's return. If that's the case, then the Spanish flu in 2018 would have been a sign of his return as well. And it was in a way. It's the it's the increasing of these things. I don't know if it's necessarily the increase of earthquakes, the increase of the raging of the seas, or if it's just an increase of all the hecticness that the world is getting more and more hectic, more and more crazy. The Bible tells us that as time goes along, things are going to become more and more crazy and then Jesus is going to return. There are those who believe, post-millennialists, that things are going to get better and better and better. In every day, in every way, things are going to get better and then we're going to Christianize the world and then when Jesus shows up, we're going to go, here, we Christianize the world for you. It doesn't look like that's happening, by the way. And it was very popular before World War II, before World War I, World War II, and the Spanish flu. It was very popular, very popular. But it lost it all then because these things are like birth pains. We just see them happening. And it's a reminder that Jesus is coming back. We cannot go but a few months, it seems, without another crisis taking place somewhere around the world that is a sign like childbirth. And one day there will be the... The, the birth of the tribulation period. Also, the second thing the Bible says is that there's going to be a great falling away in the last days. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We are living in a day when many Christians are deconstructing their faith. That's the term they use today. I'm deconstructing my faith. They will say I'm still a Christian because I don't know what to call myself, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe in the resurrection. They, they no longer believe. This is happening to a large degree. There are many people who have written music. We sing books that we've read who have been in churches and church leadership who are no longer serving and following Christ. It's a large number and it's happening today. And the Bible says that the Spirit expressly says in latter times, there would be a great falling away. 
I believe we are living in that day. And it's one of the reasons to sure up our faith, to make sure we know what we believe and we stay rooted and grounded in the word of God that we would not be shaken in these turbulent times. The third thing the Bible says about the last days is there will be that moral failures will be great, that the character of men will become, well, listen to what it says. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So again, this is people that looks like they look like they're Christians. But instead, there's a love of self, there's boasting, there's pride, there's all kinds of failures when it comes to character. And that will be again the last days. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The fourth thing the Bible says about the last days is that Israel would become a nation again. More specifically, that Jerusalem would come under Israeli control. This is a prophecy from Jesus. We don't often think of Jesus as a prophet, but he is. And he gave several prophecies that came true. He talked about the gospel being preached all around the world. Here we have these ancient documents written so long ago that prophesy the gospel would be preached around the world. And it is. Listen to what he says in um, Luke 21, 24, talking about the end of the world. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, Israel, the nation of Israel. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. This is in 70 AD when Titus marched on Jerusalem. They sieged the city for four years, surrounded it in 66, took it in 70 AD. And hundreds of thousands were taken as slaves. Hundreds of thousands were brutally murdered by the Romans. And they dispersed them around the world so that the area of Israel became desolate. And as more time came on, it became more desolate. D.L. Moody writes of visiting Jerusalem and talking of using it as an analogy of the opposite of heaven because Jerusalem was so desolate in the middle of the 1800s. Then Jesus said this. Remember, that's in, that hadn't happened yet. He's talking about this happening 40 years before it happened, right? And then he says this. Um, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So that Israel would come back under Israeli control when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jerusalem came back under Israeli control for the first time since 70 AD in 1967. They immediately gave back the Temple Mount to Palestinian control. And that has been one section that they have not had full control of. They have full control of everything else. 
here recently, and I've spoken of this, there are Jews that are going up on the Temple Mount and the Israeli police are looking the other way while they pray. There's prayers happening on the Temple Mount, which has been strictly forbidden. But there is a policy in Israel now that Jews can go up as long as they don't get too carried away. They can pray on the Temple Mount. It's just a step in the direction when the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. By the way, Paul also talked about the time of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11. He said blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then they will all be saved. So he speaks of the entire nation of Israel being saved when the fullness of the Gentiles is done. We know that that happens during the tribulation period. That's the purpose of the tribulation period is to save Israel out of it and to judge the world, judge those who dwell on the earth, but to do a work so that Israel will end up being saved. In Isaiah 11, 11, it gives us a prophecy and it says this, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of the people who are left. A second time. They were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And then through Nehemiah and Ezra, they were brought back into the land. Then they were taken out by the Romans. And then in 19, well, the early 1900s, God began to call them, as the Bible says, from the north, the south and the east and the west. And they began to come back to Israel so that in 1900, there were there were a few thousand Jews that were in Israel. And today there are over six million that are in Israel. The number has just swollen in the last hundred years, exactly as it said. And he says, I'll put my hand a second time to recover the remnant of my people who are left in Assyria, in Egypt, in Pathros, in Cush, in Elam, in Shinar, in Helmoth, and the islands of the sea so that God would bring them back into the land. And we could go to so many passages that talk about Israel being the super sign. There's so much in the Bible about the last days and the nation of Israel that for hundreds of years when Israel wasn't a nation, Bible students thought, well, this can't be talking about the nation of Israel. It has to be talking about something else. So they came up with replacement theology. We're talking about the church here. They're, they replaced Israel and all the promises God made to Israel, he made to the church because they weren't a nation. And I can't really blame them for that. They were looking around at the world that they saw and they were going, this doesn't fit with the Bible. But when Israel became a nation, born again in a day, as the Bible said, in March 14th of 1948, and when they were attacked and survived and then attacked in, then in 67 did a preemptive war. They were attacked, but they preemptively struck and they survived. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War, they survived. Something ought to tell you that God's doing something. And today, never in the history of the world have Russia and Persia been on the same side. But the Bible says that Russia and Persia are going to come against Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And they now are on the same side. The Gog and Magog wars, the, the, the coalition of armies are all anti-Israel today, which is incredibly significant. Just by chance, just by chance, you've got all these countries that are named there. And the ones that we can identify are all anti-Israel. The Sudan, Libya, Turkey, uh, Persia, just by chance. They've never been that way before. We're, we're, the stage is set. I'm not the only one who says that, right? But the stage is set. He could truly come back at any moment 
And um, Jimmy Evans calls Israel the super sign. And I think that's a good point to make. It's like God's super sign saying, I'm coming back. I promised I would bring the nation of Israel back. And look, here they are. And we kind of ignore it. And I say we, I just mean the church in general. I don't mean you particularly. So the sixth thing, uh, fifth thing, excuse me, is that sound doctrine will not endure in the last days. Men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. We're living in a day when men are not enduring sound doctrine. When churches are deciding to live for their own thing, making their own stand, fighting against the things of God. The sixth thing is that in the last day, scoffers were going to arise. And I always like to add this one into the list of the last day signs, because when someone's scoffing me, I can be like, you're a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. <laughs> this is first, this is second Peter three, three and four. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the very beginning of creation. We have many scoffers today. The seventh and final thing is in Second Peter as well. And that's three, eight, and nine. And that is that the reason that God has waited so long. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like the day, a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So in the last days, God will come to the end of bringing men into the kingdom of God. That will be the end of the tribulation period because men will be able to turn and come to Christ during that whole time. And hopefully many will during those days. But here he says to them in verse two, in verse one of chapter five, excuse me, in verse two of chapter five, for you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He comes at a time when you don't know it. He's coming at a time when you don't expect it. And here we talked about Luke 17 this last week. Let me just read a little bit of this to you. It says in Luke 17, starting in verse 20, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus tells us in Luke 17, this is, this is a comparison, a type as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. We think that when the tribulation period starts, that it's going to be a, you know, apocalypse now. Helicopters, dark smoke flying around. And we're going to go, yeah, that's the end. But it's not. It's going to happen fast. That's why Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. It's going to happen fast. And things will be going along as normal. It'll be a day like today. When we look around us and we see some things that make us go, huh, huh. And then he's going to show up like a thief in the night. The comparison to a thief is not that he's coming to steal something from you. The comparison to a thief is that if you had known, as Jesus said in Luke 12, if you had known what time the thief was going to come, you would have been ready for him. 
But a thief comes when you don't expect him. Jesus not only uses this here, he uses it in several other places to let us know he's coming at a time when we don't expect him. The only time that that works, by the way, is before the tribulation period when we don't expect him. Because as soon as the tribulation period, as soon as the Antichrist comes on the scene, we're going to go, now I expect Jesus to return. And so Luke 20, uh, verse 40, similar, Jesus said, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect him. That's what he means by him coming like a thief in the night. He's coming at an hour you don't expect him. When the world may be falling apart, but there's all this promise of things coming back together again. So in verse 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. There have been many who have suggested that maybe it's at a time where the world strikes some great peace deal and it looks like we are entering into peace. There's going to be no more wars. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. And he uses the same term Jesus used as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, he says, are not in darkness. So that day should overtake you as a thief. You and I have been warned. We've been told by Jesus in Luke chapter 12, wait for me, be ready for me and watch for me. Watch and see what's happening in the world in the days that you are live and wait for him. Have your belt girded, Jesus said, right? Your robe tucked into your belt, ready to work and your lamp burning so that when he shows up, you're like, here I am. I've been waiting for you. And we need to do that. We are not in darkness that the day should overcome us like a thief. So what do we do? What do you do if right now you say, well, I'm not ready for Jesus to return. I've got sin in my life. I was thinking of that passage in Revelation 16, 15, where Jesus says, I come like a thief and you better be ready or I'm going to expose your shame. And I got to think there's everyone, everyone has shame they don't want exposed. Everybody. Jesus says, be ready. How do you, how do you be ready? Well, the Bible tells us the things that we sow to are the things we're going to reap. If we sow to the flesh, from the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, from the spirit, we will reap life. And the Bible tells us that if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we want to sow to spiritual things. Every day, we want to do things that edify us spiritually. Every day, we want to do more things that edify us spiritually than things that we watch that bring us down into the things of this world. If you're sowing to the sensual things of this world, the sexual things of this world, then you can expect that to be produced in your life. If you're sowing to spiritual things, then you can expect that to be produced in your life. The Old Testament says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in God, if tomorrow you said, I'm going to delight myself in God more tomorrow than I did yesterday or today than I did yesterday. You, you don't have to be the person that says, I'm going to be the, mo- the person in the entire world that delights myself in God more than anyone else. That could be very ambitious. It's like the guy that goes to work out, works out five hours with the heaviest weights he can lift and never works out again a day in his life because <laughs> he's way too sore. 
You might not be able to be the closest person to Jesus tomorrow on the earth, but you can be closer than you were yesterday. And the next day you can be closer than you were today. You can take some solid steps towards him. You can say, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to delight in him today. And he's going to give me the desire. My heart's desires are going to be good because I delighted in God. The New Testament equivalent to that is abide in me, Jesus said, and let my words abide in you and you will ask whatever you desire. These are ways we overcome the, the, the draw to the world that all of us have. We overcome them by delighting in God, uh, by abiding in his word, by walking in the spirit, and we will see those things in our lives. And when Jesus returns, we'll be ready. We won't be in darkness. We're expecting him. He's going to come back at any moment. So then he goes on to say, you're not in darkness that things should overtake you as a thief. And then he says, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day and not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. So a lot of years before he'll write the book of Ephesians and talk about the armor that we're to wear. But this is kind of like the beginning of that, it seems. The bre this is the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians. Here, it's the breastplate of faith and love. In Corinthians, he'll say, now there is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These are all keys to us walking the way that we should, living by faith, trusting God in what God says enough to do what we find in the scriptures, walking in love with one another because love fulfills the law. Jesus said, and, and, and this is the fulfillment of the law, that you love one another, that you love God with your heart, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in verse eight, he says, uh, excuse me, in verse nine, he says, for God did not appoint us to wrath but obtain salvation through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why would Paul say that? As he's talking about watching and waiting the day not overtaking you like a thief, as he's talking about the church being caught up together to meet them in the air, that that day doesn't over, that, that you have not been appointed for God's wrath. Because the tribulation period is a time of God's indignation and God's wrath. And he already said in chapter one, verse 10, that we were not appointed for the time of wrath. Now in chapter five, verse nine, he says the same thing. By the way, an easy way to remember these two verses, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and Romans 5.9 say the same thing. They're two witnesses to the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 again, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but, obtained, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Both of them tell us that we are not entering into God's wrath. God's, I said this last week, God's not angry at us. We're not going into the tribulation period. Not unless you, you don't have your, you know, belt girded, right? And your lamp on. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. So then in verse 10, he now wants to wrap the letter up. He's beginning to wrap it up and he's talking about how they're supposed to live. And it's interesting to me that he writes a whole nother letter talking to them about how they're supposed to live while they're waiting because they don't do it. They, they, get in, they, they have some problems and they start to wait for Jesus and not really do what they're supposed to do. 
they, some of them quit their jobs. And so in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say, if you don't work, you don't eat. To get out there and get a job. Because some were like, Jesus is coming back. I don't got to work. And so he's going to talk in the next book about how we're supposed to live while we're waiting. But here he, tells, he does that a little bit. He just has another need to write another letter and talk to them about that. He says in verse 10, who died for us, that we are saved from the wrath to come through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died for us, and whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, edify one another, just as you also are doing. And there's the connection to the end of chapter four, comfort one another with these words, and now comfort one another with these words. You are not in darkness that the day should overcome you like a thief, but you watch and be ready. Make sure your life is ready. And so he starts to just, it seems kind of random, but he starts to just wrap the letter up. He says in verse 12, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord to admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the love for the work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. So he says, for those who are ministering among you, there, there are several passages in the Bible that tell us to make it joyful for someone to serve, that tell us to be obedient because they watch out for your souls. And all of that is true. But I can't help to think of the times that we are living in where today there are, there are more celebrity pastors than at any other time in church history. And I can't help to think that we aren't living in a day when there's a lot of boasting and pride that takes place from pulpits and should constantly be fought against. And I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be respectful, loving, and kind towards those who are ministering. But sometimes I wonder if God didn't mean it to be so, where there were just so many celebrity pastors and we're just seeing one celebrity pastor fall after another, fall after another, fall after another. And to be honest with you, it is absolutely heartbreaking to watch. I think that there ought, there ought to be love and respect. But if you put somebody up on a pedestal, sooner or later, they're going to fall off that pedestal because they weren't meant to be up there. Someone said here recently, talking about celebrity pastors, that sometimes their growth outpaces their character and they end up being involved in all kinds of things they shouldn't be involved in. So maybe that's just on my heart now as I get to this passage, by the way. Let's say, just take a look at it again. And we urge you therefore, brethren, verse 12, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord to admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the love for the work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, confront the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, so that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursues what is good, both for yourselves and all. There will always be those that are unruly. There, there will, whatever church you start, if you are thinking about starting a church, then know that you're going to have people that are going to be a headache for you. I've shared before that years ago, there was a preaching the word conference with Jack Graham, John MacArthur and Charles Swindoll. And I told my wife, we're going to that one. And, and, and Charles Swindoll preached a sermon called Boars in God's Vineyard. And he talked about 
the history that he had as a pastor, the troubles that arose. At one point, he said, to my shame, I left that guy for the next guy. He was in the evangelical free where they kind of move pastors around a bit. And he said, when he, instead of taking care of a situation, when he was there, he left it for someone else. And then at the end of that, he looked out at most of us as, as pastors and said, do you know why there's boars in God's vineyard? Because you need it. Because without it, you would be intolerable. Remember that when you're dealing with those that are unruly. Remember that when you deal with those that don't make it a joy for you to be able to serve, that God has them there for a reason. It does say to warn them, but also all the other things apply in gentleness and kindness. In verse 14, he says, um, am I in the right place? Uh, Okay, no. In verse 16, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. So now he's just, on, just quickly coming through things, right? And these are all commands. Rejoice always. Well, what if I don't want to rejoice? And the Bible tells us, you know, when you're persecuted, when they mock you for my name's sake, rejoice. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can look at all three of those things and know that this is God's will for us. You say, well, I don't know what God's will for me is. Rejoice in all things, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecy. So what does the Holy Spirit do? How can we quench the Spirit? The Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. And we want those gifts to be used. And he immediately says, don't despise prophecy which he also says in the book of Corinthians, not to despise prophecy, but let one prophesy and the others judge. So we don't have to believe just because someone says, I have a gift of the Spirit and I'm going to use it. We don't have to believe that's a gift of the Spirit. We get to judge it. But we want to be sure that we don't quench the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe quenching the Holy Spirit is not allowing spiritual gifts to be practiced within the, the fellowship has been the, has been the example. But I think it's quenching the work of the, 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 the scriptures that the Holy Spirit has inspired. I think it's quenching God's direction and guidance for us when we hear and we don't do. He goes on to say, test all things. And I think again here in spiritual gifts, test all things, holding fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Remember, these are Romans. They're living in a Roman city. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved uh, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I told you before that every chapter at the, in, at the end of every chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, he ends with the return of Jesus, talking about the return of Jesus. And so here in verse 23 and 24, he talks about the peace of God sanctifying you completely, that your whole soul, body, be, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls is faithful and will also do it. Now notice there it says your whole spirit, soul, and body. Are there those three? Are we a trinity? Do we have a body, I have a consciousness, and I have a spirit? There are theologians that believe that we're just two, that the spirit and the soul are the same. And there are places in the Bible where the word soul is used, 
meaning spirit. And so it's not an easy, it's not easy to unravel at all. But I do believe that there is three. I believe that there's a spirit, soul, and body. We just can't get down into the difference between the spirit and the soul. And that's why Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get down between the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's not easy to figure it out, but we have a soul. Remember when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they died. They didn't die physically. God said, in the day you eat it, you will die. They died spiritually. And sin nature came into the world and everyone that was born was born with a dead spirit. And when we are born again, our spirit comes to life. We are transformed and we become a new person. I like to tell people, inviting Christ into your life doesn't just give you your ticket to heaven. That comes with it. But you are entirely transformed and changed. Jesus said in John chapter 4, those who worship me was, must worship me in spirit and in truth. That's why if your spirit hasn't come to life and you haven't been born again, you can't worship God. You can say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a born again Christian. Well, you've been born of the flesh, but you haven't been born of the spirit. You have to be born again. And so there's the body, soul, and spirit for the regenerated Christian. Before that, there's a body and soul. Maybe a dormant spirit. Again, these are things that theologians argue about, which shouldn't shock you. Theologians argue about a lot of things, but they argue whether or not the spirit is dormant or the spirit is dead. But the Bible says in several places that God will make your spirit come alive that you will be born of God, not of the will of man, but of the will of God that you would be born. And that's your spirit. Then he ends by saying, brethren, pray for us. Greet all brethren with a holy kiss. And this is America. We don't do that in America. <laughs> I like to say that that's cultural. All right. And certainly not during COVID times, but don't get carried away in the Middle East right? They kiss on each cheek. It's just, it's just what they, it's, it's the way that they greet. It's what they do. And it's what they did in their day as well. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I've shared before that when people have come up and kissed me on the cheek, I, I, I don't like it at all. <laughs> Had a guy on the West campus. After the service was done, I'd be talking. He would come up and he'd kiss me on the cheek and I'd feel his whiskers against my face. And I was like, <laughs> man. So I started doing defensive moves when he walked up. He'd walk up and I'd go completely sideways. Hey, how you doing? You know, we're shaking hands. We're not kissing. I'm sure he's reading this and going, it says in the Bible to greet one another with a holy kiss. And I'm going to do that. All right. Well, there's something cultural here, but certainly we can read it that we are to be affectionate towards one another. We're to really love one another and be affectionate towards one another. Then he says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren so these epistles were to be read in all of the churches. Remember, they were really close to Berea. They were close to Athens, that these would be read in the other areas. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The heart of this chapter, that we are not in darkness, that the thief would come to us in an unexpected way, but we are in the light. Let us live in the light. Let us be ready. And if there's something you got to take care of, then take care of it. And sow to the Spirit daily. As you sow to the Spirit, as you delight in God, you're going to find yourself growing in all of the things that God wants for you. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we have this book that we just finished. 
which reveals so much to us about your return and also that afflictions are going to be in our lives and how we are supposed to live in light of the afflictions that we face. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal these things to us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.